0: Hey, what's up, everyone? This is Antonio Neves. And before we dig into this episode, I wanna let you know that this episode is brought to you by me. Yes, it is brought to you by me. There is no sponsor. No one is providing me with donations. I am not seeking them out from you. This podcast is being created out of my wallet. And the reason why I tell you that is because right now there is something really important that you want to do but you are waiting for a sponsor. You are waiting for some type of patron or benefactor. You're waiting for an email to show up. You're waiting for a phone call to come in. And I wanna invite you, to instead to be your own sponsor, to be your own patron, to be your own benefactor, to instead of waiting for that email, to press send on an email. Instead of waiting for that phone call, to make the phone call. Instead of waiting for someone to come to you with a great idea and how you can help them shine, you shine on your own without them. Sure, the sponsorships and all those things may come, but at some point you have to be willing to invest in yourself and to bet on you. By the way, if you are digging this podcast, I invite you to share this with a friend. I invite you to press subscribe right now wherever you are listening. I truly appreciate you taking time to listen to my podcast. This is a passion for me to do every single week. So without further ado, let's get to this episode.
1: Welcome to the Best Thing Podcast where we talk to thought leaders, creatives, authors, and entrepreneurs about how sometimes the best thing to happen to you is the most unexpected. Welcome your host, Antonio Nevs.
0: Hey everyone, welcome to The Best Thing Podcast, where I talk to people about the best thing to ever happen to them that doesn't include the traditional markers of success. I'm your host, Antonio Neves. I'm a speaker, author, and coach. And each week, I bring on a new guest who has a powerful story that will motivate, inspire, and help you see life through a new lens. Now, this week's guest is someone I met when I first moved to Los Angeles back in 2012. And let me tell you, you are in for a treat Christine Hassler is the best-selling author of three books, most recently, Expectation, Hangover, Free Yourself from Your Past, Change Your Present, and Get What You Really Want. Now, she left her successful job as a Hollywood agent to pursue a life she could be passionate about. Now, for over a decade as a keynote speaker, a retreat facilitator, a spiritual psychologist and life coach, and also host of the top rated podcast, Over It and On With It. She has been teaching and inspiring people around the world. She believes once we get out of our own way, we can show up to make the meaningful impact we are here to make. How about we get to it? Christine, welcome Mm. to the best thing.
1: Thanks, Antonia. It's so cool to be here with you.
0: I appreciate you making time, and I got to tell you what I look forward to uh, when I'm on Instagram and when I come by one of your posts. I love looking at the location because I'm like, oh, <laughs> where <laughs> in the world is Christine Hassler and her husband now? Could, could you share the audience a little bit about your travels and maybe? Oh
1: boy, yeah. yeah. Well, we are in our 20th, I can't remember if it's our 20th or 21st place since November 30th. And as when we're recording this, it's February 21st. So that's like less than three months in 21 different places. Um, we well, so just a little background. My husband is Aust- he's Greek Italian, Australian. So he's half Greek, half Italian, but grew up in Australia and a little bit of Greece. And we met when he was living in Perth and I was living in Encinitas um, near San Diego through a mutual friend. And we had a two-month relationship over WhatsApp before we met in (laughs) Europe. We met in Mykonos where we later got married. So we've always sort of, our life has always been traveling in different locations. And I wanted more than anything after we met and we moved into a place in Encinitas to just be grounded because right before I met him... I actually had to leave I was I was kicked out of the place I was living in in Encinitas because I had a crazy, wacky landlord, but I loved the place. The place was great. The landlord was not so great and I had been living out of suitcases for eight months, so I was just like i 'm too old to be a digital nomad. I, I just want my place i 'm a virgo. I want to be grounded. I want like all my I want to unpack all my underwear like that I want it all in a drawer, not a suitcase and we finally were settled, and we found out this past summer that our landlord wanted to move back in. So we ended up having to move out November 30th and we bought a house in Austin because we just feel this pull to Austin for a variety of reasons. And we are like, all right, the universe, that's the second place in Encinitas that I've been asked to leave. So I'm like, all right, I don't need a third sign here. I think we're just gonna get out and buy a home so that no landlords can tell us what to do. And our house isn't ready till March 1st. So we have been living out of suitcases. We've been we were in Australia for two months because that's where Steph is from. We were all over Australia, East Coast, West Coast, all over. And then we've been back in LA. We've been back in Encinitas. We've been in Temecula, Palm Springs. Now we're in North Carolina. I think there's probably one place in there that I'm forgetting, uh, but we've been all over and It's really, we had this conversation uh, a few days ago when we had just an off day and we were fighting and picking on each other and driving each other crazy. And after we got to the other side of the argument, I looked at him and I said, you know what, babe? For basically living in each other's space and having very little alone time, very little external time with our friends, very little just space in general, we're doing pretty good. (laughs) Like We're doing pretty well. But I will say we're both looking forward to being grounded.
0: I'm sure. And that makes me even think about, I remember bumping into you at the gym one time in Los Angeles, and I remember you had to leave Los Angeles under some unique circumstances as well, correct?
1: Yeah. Well, I had wanted to leave, but then I actually left a little earlier because there was an electrical fire in my house.
0: Wow. (laughs) So as I hear that, a couple of things come to mind, I and mean, we'll get into the the you know what the the thesis is of this podcast. But a couple of things come to mind. Like it seems like even prior to meeting your husband, there have been some signs that maybe have said, "Christine, we love you," but maybe Southern California isn't it. And and how about this? You're from Texas, so now you're finding your way back to Texas. Yeah,
1: yeah. I wish I could take the California weather with me. Uh, but finding my way back to Texas, grew up in Dallas, but my whole family's in Austin. So we w- literally will be living seven minutes from my parents and seven minutes from my sister and her kids. So All we're going to be close to home.
0: That's beautiful. And tell me this, with, with so much moving around, you said over 20 places over the past few months with your mm-hmm. husbands and kudos to both of y'all for being able to to do that. It's not always easy, especially for folks that, you know, we need our space. We need to spread our wings a little bit. How do you, what's your approach to staying grounded amidst change?
1: Honestly, the biggest thing is meditation and I'm not great at it. I'm really not great at it, but when I do it, I feel the difference. So finding that time and not five minutes, not 10 minutes, not 20 minutes, but like a good hour to go inside and and shift my state. And the thing that is most helpful to me is the work of Dr. Joe Dispenza. We actually did his advanced retreat in Palm Springs just last week. And there we were meditating for four and a half hours in a stretch, sometimes, and, and that wasn't all. You do a four. We'd wake up at three thirty a.m. Do a four a.m. meditation. It would go till eight or eight thirty, and then we'd have another one in the late morning, and then another one in the evening. And it really, it was really, was transformational in so many ways. But I notice when I'm not doing that, when I'm just getting up and going through my day, or looking at my phone, and 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 rushing, that I I definitely feel ungrounded. I have more brain fog. I make more mistakes. um, My mood is different and um, I just don't feel like vital. But when I really carve out that time, then I absolutely feel grounded. And then the other thing, and I've had some health challenges this year that were directly the result of living on airplanes for my entire 30s and just being, allowing myself to be stressed out um, so that that kind of caught up with me, and that's been another wake up call in terms of just really slowing down and making sure I'm not back to back to back, like actually having space for myself, and then just having fun. You know, the great thing about traveling is there's new people everywhere, and if you're not on your phone and you're actually present, interacting with other people can actually be fun and heartwarming, and like I was in the um, Charlotte Admirals Club. I'm sure you've been there. <laughs> and, yep. Yep. It's a nice one. It's got that big circle in the middle. And uh, I was getting tea and this guy said, oh man, there's no green tea. Do you see any green tea? I said, I don't, I don't see any, but I have some. He's like, I go, I go, I'll, go get, I'll go get you some. He goes, what? Really? And I said, yeah, I'll just go get you some of mine. So I brought him back my green tea and it was sealed in a pouch. So he knew it wasn't anything dangerous <laughs> or anything. <laughs> and his day was made his day was made. And just little moments like that, staying connected to humanity, staying connected to my heart, staying connected to gratitude, that's what helps helps me stay grounded.
0: I appreciate you sharing that because what a beautiful reminder about stillness and how important it is in this day and age when we confuse movement for getting things done and sometimes it can be hurting us. But also you said something that made me laugh and sigh. You said uh, interacting with other people can be fun. <laughs> <laughs> right. That that made me chuckle because you're right. In this day and age, very rarely we think we're interacting as we're texting, as we're tweeting, as we're Instagramming, as we're leaving comments, et cetera, but we're not truly interacting. So a good reminder for, you know, the listeners that interact in real life, what a game changer it actually is. And wow, how awesome of you to share your, your green tea with that dude. Like he's gonna have a story to tell for a long time.
1: Yeah, and it made me it made me feel just as good as as he did. And that's the thing, like giving is very grounding because it just connects you back to oneness. And there's I mean, nothing more grounding than oneness.
0: I agree 100%. So thank you for sharing that, but let's dig into this. So sure. Christine, what would you say is one of the, I'm sure you have many of them as the you know, guests I've had in the podcast have, but what would you say is one of the best things to happen to you that doesn't in- include those societal traditional markers of success that have you know, played a role in, in who you are today and, and how you approach life?
1: It's such a great question. And as we were talking before we started recording, I said it's a difficult question because there are so many. But I'm going to go with being put on antidepressants at 11 years old because that really was a turning point for me on so many levels and really is in so many ways why I do what I do in terms of my, I won't even call it my job. I would call it my dharma, my passion, my life's work. Because that, that moment, at the time was defining to say the least. I was told that I had a chemical imbalance, that I'd always need these drugs, that if I was diabetic, I would take insulin. But there was a lot of shame around that too, you know. This was when was this late 80s when mental illness was still very much a stigma and I can recall going to my psychiatrist during school and having to come back with a doctor's note. So I would get excused absences and my mom would help me white out her, her name MD. And then underneath it said psychiatry and we'd write out, white out the psychiatry part so that the school mom who was doing the attendance wouldn't know. Mm -hmm. And so not only did I feel like something was really wrong, but I felt very, very ashamed and very separate and like being me, wasn't enough.
0: Can you tell me more a little bit about, about that 11-year-old and you can go as deeper or not as deep as you want about that that led to you know, these folks diagnosing you with this you know, quote-unquote chemical imbalance and saying, yeah. hey, we need to put you on these pills?
1: Well, looking back now and knowing myself now, I know I'm a highly sensitive person and that's actually a diagnosis, HSP, and I'm an empath which makes me really good at what I do. There's gifts in being an HSP and an empath, but most parents and school systems don't really recognize it and don't really understand it. So as a kid, I can remember being very connected to spirit, being very connected to other dimensions and also feeling deeply. Like When my parents would fight, I'd feel it deeply. When I'd um, see an old man in a restaurant eating alone, somehow I'd know his wife had died and I'd feel that deeply. I just felt everything so deeply. And the world was hard for me to navigate because I just didn't only feel my own feelings. I felt everybody else's feelings. That in addition to some abuse that happened, not in my family, but outside of it, and also just some hard times at school, but that actually got worse as I got older, I think just made me shut down. I shut down as a protective strategy. I also think there was a gluten intolerance that was affecting things. Was I clinically depressed? I don't know. If they'd done blood work, maybe they'd show that my serotonin levels were off, but I don't know that I really needed antidepressants. But I'm glad that I had them because being on them and consequently getting off of them at age 30, so I was on them for nearly two decades of my life during my most formative years, has taught me incredible things and has given me so much compassion and appreciation for feelings.
0: First, I appreciate you for sharing that. And I'm just willing, would you be willing to share a little bit with the audience, but really for me as well, uh, when you say empath and being mm-hmm. highly sensitive, what that can look like. And and I say that from two places. One, just of wanting to be educated. Yeah. But two, Christine, I say that from a place, frankly, of being a parent of almost four year old toddlers. Yeah. And I think about You know them, and I think about probably maybe other parents who are listening that may make some assumptions, right or wrong, about their children. And I'm guessing, based on your experience, you probably could shed some light on some things and and provide some new perspectives, especially for for parents and beyond.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of children that are being born now, and I count your four year olds in the now, so in the in the recent times, are going to be born as empaths and HSP because in order to solve some of the problems of the world that are emerging let's just take for example the environment there's a different different consciousness required and like i said one of the gifts of being sensitive and empathic is that you're really tuned into other people to the earth and to spirit to your own intuition and you know einstein says problems can't be solved at the level that they're created so a new consciousness is going to need to emerge for some of these issues to be resolved so most likely a lot of parents of young kids right now are going to have sensitive kids. Put, it, put the label of empath on there or not. It doesn't really matter. But just be aware your kids are going to probably have heightened sensitivities. And that's, that's a good thing. It's like, how do you nourish them? So some signs of being empathic are being easily, like, easily overwhelmed in your nervous system. So not really liking super loud sounds. Like I'm really jumpy. Like sometimes my husband will make a sound and I'll jump and he's like, "Why did you jump so big? You're so jumpy." That's that's one of the things. He's like, "You're just sort of sensitive to noise and sounds." Most empaths don't like big crowded spaces with lots of people. Um, need alone time. Need space. So if if you notice that your kid may be sensitive or highly emotional, like create a safe space for them to talk. But also say to them, you know, I can see that you're feeling upset. Would some time on your own be helpful for you? And like give them, give them space and time to just be alone and recalibrate. That's a big thing for for empaths, is we need our alone time. And that's important in relationships too, is to because empaths love deeply, but we also can feel smothered at times. So boundaries in relationship, having our alone time is really important. Another indicator is just feeling deeply, like feeling deeply, feeling beyond compassion, feeling sympathy sometimes. And and beyond even that, like feeling what the person is feeling. So this is helpful for me as a coach and a facilitator because I can literally jump into how someone's feeling. The good news is I've worked with myself long enough to be able to pull out of that as well and not get lost in it. But I, I don't need someone to tell me very much to be able to feel into what the, they're feeling. So you may notice if you're relating to this as yourself being an empath, you just have a natural ability to, to feel what people are feeling. And if you have children that are like that, just notice like if you, let's say, have a fight with your spouse or you're stressed, they'll get a stomach ache or they'll get really upset even more than, than normal. Those are all sort of signs that um, the kid is really picking up on feelings. Now, let me just say all kids are sponges and they pick up on everything, <laughs> but kids that are more sensitive, they absorb it even more. And often empaths want to go and make it better want to fix it as well and often don't have very good self-boundaries on getting over-involved in other people's emotions and problems. Um, the other thing too, and then I'll, I'll shut up for a minute, is empaths have a hard time not taking things personally. Mm. So I had a client who was talking about a situation she had with her boss where her boss was just going off on her, but he goes off on everybody. He's just an angry guy. People that aren't empathic could just be like, "Whatever, that guy's a jerk." I'm not gonna let it let it stick to me. Empathic goes in, and you take it personally, and you feel heartbroken, and you feel devastated. So those, I mean, there's more to it, but those are some of the the main things.
0: That's beautiful to hear, and it's it's so helpful because I mean, I'm not sure I would call myself an empath. I think there's some more more learning to do, but I think about my career as a journalist, but also as a coach and. There's a gift that I've always had and the same gift that you have is being able to hear what's not said, uh, kind of seeing between the lines, if you will. But as I think about kids, specifically, as you th- talk about these highly sensitive kids or maybe some kids who are empaths about how society in many ways, we do our darndest to, to knock it out of them, to get folks to inform. Yeah. The, the visual I have right now is how you're breaking in a horse. And I mm-hmm. hate—I even hate that visual as it comes to my head, maybe hate's the wrong word, but how we get especially young kids to conform. And as a parent, what I'm trying to do my best to do sometimes is let that kid be the kid versus my old stories and my programming coming in to get them to walk a certain way, behave a certain way, even at a young age. And I see this all the time. And so that's just great language to uh, to hear. So I, I appreciate that from an individual perspective, but also from a parent, great reminders. Um, you mentioned, obviously, you started taking antidepressants at 11 years old. Of
1: mm-hmm. course,
0: some people may hear that and they may say, wow, she did that for, for 20 years. And you call this, you know, one of the quote unquote best things. I'm curious at what point, Christine, did you realize that being an empath, I mean, even if you didn't have that language as a kid, as a teenager, as a 20 something When did you start to acknowledge that? Holy moly. Hold on a second. This is my, this is my gift. This Mm. is my my superpower. When did that shift in awareness come about?
1: Uh, It was my mid to late twenties when I met my first coach. So I'd seen psychiatrists and psychologists since I was 11, mainly to monitor my medication. And I've been on every antidepressant there is. (laughs) You name it. I've been on it as long as it, you know, came out before I was 30. And I, so one of my friends told me about this kind of crazy, I don't even know if she called her a coach. I think she just said this woman, she said, I don't even know what she is. I don't know if she's a therapist or a healer or a coach or what she is. So I went and saw this woman, Mona, and I was probably 23 when I first saw her. And she was the first person, especially professional person, that didn't look at me like I was broken. Hmm. She didn't look at me like a clinician who had a problem to solve. She looked at me and she said, baby, there's nothing wrong with you you've just had big feelings that you've had to suppress. That's all, that's all. And I was like, that's not all, I'm clinically depressed. I have to be on antidepressants because I was so programmed. I was a robot really believing all the things that I've been told. And it took a while because when all that was going on, I was still working in Hollywood. I ended up leaving my career there, got dumped by my fiance, estranged from my family, went into debt my health got worse in, in other areas. So I wasn't really ready to let the crutch of antidepressants go. But what was happening is I I started writing my first book. And as I was interviewing, the, the, my first book was called 20-something, or it is called 20-something, 20-everything. <laughs> and I was interviewing women for the book. And I wanted to write a self-help book for women in their 20s because there, there wasn't one. I would read all these self-help books, but they were just for people much older. And- as I was interviewing women, they'd say at the end of the interview, can we set up another time to talk? And I'd be like, why? And they'd say, well, aren't you a coach or a counselor? And also at the same time to make money, I was working as a personal trainer. And my clients would always say to me, I just love talking to you. You're so insightful. It's hard to work out. I just want to talk to you. And so I started to have it reflected back to me. It wasn't like an aha moment of me going, oh, like I'm actually pretty intuitive. I'm actually pretty empathic. It was people reflecting back to me their experience of me. And then I went to Mona and I said, all right, like I'm starting to realize that maybe I have a gift for helping people. And she said, yep, yeah, I've known that all along. And I said, I've been seeing you for like five years. How come you didn't tell me this? And she said, because it was yours to figure out. It's yours to figure out. And then she said, are you ready to get off those drugs now? Because if you're going to help people, you're going to have to feel everything. And I said, Yes. And it took me, I can't remember exactly, but I want to say three years from making the decision to being totally off them. I did it slow and I did it in a way that um, would, you know, because being on them from age 11, I, you know, my brain chemistry was obviously pretty addicted to it. So it, it took me a while. And there were times where I'd get on a pretty low dose and the depression would come back and the feelings would feel really big and I'd be like, I can't do this. And I'd up the dose again. So I had lots of five steps forward, six steps back moment. But I remember when I finally was off and actually knew I was done. Like I, I knew I was done. And what was so beautiful is once being off antidepressants, my range of being able to feel got so much bigger. And because I was able to feel in a bigger way, I was able to help people in a bigger way too.
0: Wow, there's so much to unpack there, and I'm just I'm 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 feeling bad right now for my email inbox because I'm imagining so many emails are going to come in and say, Hey Antonio, great podcast, can you get Mona's information for me? But they they can reach out directly to you. Well, I just love.
1: I should say Mona is no longer on the planet. She died uh, about six years ago, which was devastating and shocking to me. She died at 50 years old, so she assists me from the other side, but she is no longer on the planet.
0: Wow, I'm sorry to hear that. And what a beautiful gift of this woman being able to look at you and say, she didn't look at you like anything was broken. Mm-hmm. And what a powerful gift that we all can have when we meet that man, we meet that woman, whether there's a par- whether they're a partner, a friend, a coach, a teacher, you name it, and they don't look at us like we're we're broken. And I know firsthand you have this gift because. In every conversation we've had, uh, there's a, a strong presence that you've had. One, I feel like you're, you're always there with me. I feel like you always can see uh, kind of what's not being said, what's kind of behind the nice smile, the showy smile that may be out there. And it, it is such a gift. You said something else that, that Mona told you that stuck with me. And you said you, she said when you mentioned to her uh, that you, know, you have this gift, you want to pursue this. She said, well, you're going to have to uh, feel to do that kind of work. Um, I, my hunch is there's somebody listening right now that uh, could benefit from learning more about what, how you go about being willing to feel more. I, I think back to, again, variety of work that I've done over the years, being able to sit with my anger, being able to sit with my sadness, being able to sit with my excitement, as opposed to doing things to, um, to block it. And that goes both ways. You know, yeah. you think about the upper limit problem where I, I can feel a lot of joy, uh, a lot of love, and I'll find a way, whoa, this feels too good. Let me find a way to, <laughs> let, me get a, yeah, <laughs> let me get in a fight real quick with my wife because <laughs> I'm feeling more loved than ever before. Holy moly, wait, wait this is the best financial quarter I've ever had. Mm-hmm. Let me uh, find a way to bring this down. So could you talk a little bit about going about how to feel more? Maybe you can do it from a lens of maybe that person who may not be on an antidepressants, ant- sure. but they want to feel more.
1: Well, we all feel. It's just whether or not we give ourselves permission to actually let it come up and out. So, if you're um, feeling overwhelmed, if you're f- then then you're feeling right. If you're feeling irritable, then you're feeling. But a lot of these things, like overwhelm, irritability, are even depression, are the result of suppressed feelings. So the first thing to do is to just actually make space to be still, kind of like we were talking about in the beginning in terms of being grounded. Really make the space to be still because we are so good at distracting ourselves from feelings. We we chase the good feelings. We chase the feelings that release dopamine, but we don't want to feel shame. We don't want to feel anger. We don't want to feel sadness. We don't want to feel grief. So we distract ourselves. And with our phones and our computers and the gazillion channels there are on the internet. We have countless distractions. Add to that drugs, alcohol, shopping, gambling, sex. There's so many things that we can use to not feel, to numb ourselves. And so what I find is that most people reach a rock bottom moment. They get laid off. They get broken up with. They get diagnosed with an illness. Some, they fail in some way. They have what I like to call an expectation hangover. And that's when they usually get to me and are like, I just don't know what to do. And the, fir- I, the first step is what well, you got to start feeling. You got to start feeling not just what you're feeling now, but all the feelings that you haven't felt your whole life. Because I have found that any expectation hangover, let's say it's a job layoff, it's going to pull up feelings, not just from that, but feelings from when you didn't get picked for the basketball team in seventh grade and you had to brush that under the rug because you were told boys don't cry by your father. So we have this like file cabinet of feelings and this may sound intimidating because you may be thinking as you're listening to me, oh God, so if I open Pandora's box, am I gonna have to go through everything in my life and go through trauma again and feel everything again? No, the beautiful thing about the emotional body is that when we allow a big feeling like sadness or anger to come up in a safe space and we have compassion, for ourselves as we're going through it, it's like the feeling can clear. And what I have found with working with people is that maybe this metaphor won't work too well for you, Antonio, because I don't know how many necklaces you wear, but hmm. have you ever seen your wife trying to get a knot out of a necklace, like a really tangled, delicate necklace?
0: Yesterday. It, yesterday really? she was. Yes. <laughs>
1: okay, cool. No wonder that image came to mind. So it's frustrating. But once you get this one spot, like there's a sweet spot, in the whole mess of knots. And you get that sweet spot and it's like, oh, the whole thing unravels. And that's how it is oftentimes with our emotional body. Like when we find some of the initial owies, the initial pains that created those first feelings of fear, of grief, of shame, or whatever they were, of anger, and we give ourselves a safe space to express those. And this is what I teach in Expectation Hangover in my mastery course we give them a safe space to come up and out. It's like getting that knot out of the necklace and so many others release. And for most people, it's overwhelming because we are conditioned to believe that feeling quote unquote negative feelings is bad and we shouldn't feel them. We should just feel the good ones. But what I have learned in my own experience, especially with coming off antidepressants and being not numb, but not having a lot of range in my feelings is that the more willing I am to go into my shadow, to go into the deep, dark, scary feelings, the more joy I feel, the more love I feel, more gratitude I feel. And I don't have to go into those feelings as often because I've released so much. So when I get triggered or something happens, I can feel it and move through it way more quickly and get to those feelings of compassion and gratitude a lot faster.
0: I'm just having this image right now of people walking around and with invisible backpacks or invisible suitcases. They're just filled with so much of those feelings that you're talking about that have been suppressed and what a joy it is when they get the opportunity to meet someone like you or someone else to be able to, to clear them. Some words that were coming to my head as you were describing this also is someone told me something similar. They, they use different language, but they said something to the extent of sometimes you have to lean into the pain. Yeah. And, and I could connect with that. And I can think about those moments of my life, frankly, uh, something we've discussed on your podcast um, of resisting, leaning into that pain, that vulnerability, uh, those tears, that anger of just being carnal and yelling, et cetera. Um, I think I may know the answer to this, but I, I always like to say no one who has accomplished anything of significance did it alone. I don't care if it's going mm. wrong in business. I don't care if it's clearing feelings, but we didn't do it alone. So there's someone that's listening to this. And Maybe they think they can approach doing something similar to you on their own with a book. Could you talk a little bit, a little bit about the gift of being able to work through this not alone? Whether it's,
1: mm-hmm. yeah, for sure. Um, are you still there,
0: on a therapist or through doing an amazing uh, course?
1: Mm. I never would be where I am today without Mona and many other coaches <laughs> and people that have really helped me, as well as my soul family and tribe, my like-minded tribe that I grow with. I think that sometimes we buy into the misunderstanding that we're going to get a badge of honor if we do it alone. And often our shame keeps us from reaching out for help. I, there's such an often misunderstanding too about people think things have to be really, really awful for them to reach out and get help. Nothing could be further for the, from the truth. We all need our, our allies and our coaches and our mentors. So one of my favorite sayings is when the student is ready, the teacher appears and I have found that to be true over and over and over again in my life. When I have put out a prayer, a heartfelt intention that, all right, I'm ready for my next teacher. I'm ready for my next level of growth. I trust you, universe. like You're going to lead me to them. And it'll be a conversation that I'm having with someone or something will come across you know, my Instagram feed or whatever, like somehow, some way, the right person will show up. And there's been other times when I've known I've needed someone and I've just gotten on, on Google or I've talked to a lot of people. I think the best way is to just talk to other people and say, hey, you know, I've really noticed that you've you've shifted in your life. You've gotten over a big obstacle. Did you have any coaches or therapists or anyone that was helping you? And if so, would you mind giving me their information? Because I think referrals are one of the best ways to get it. But I truly believe that if you're willing and that attention is pure you will be directed some way or another to the perfect person for you.
0: That's beautiful. And what would you say to that person who may be a little bit intimidated, say to doing a group coaching program where there it's not just them one-on-one with someone, but there are other women or other men or yeah. it's co-ed and they're they're sharing stories?
1: Well, one, listen to my podcast, The Coaching Episodes, and you'll see how similar we all are. Like that's why I wanted to air unedited, unscripted, unproduced coaching episodes on my podcast so that people could see, oh my gosh, that person thinks that way too, or that person has that problem too. And you'll start to see that you're not alone in what what you think is crazy about you actually isn't crazy. It's very normal. <laughs> and there are so many other people that feel the same thing. So maybe that's a good start. And the second thing is knowing that vulnerability is healing serum. Vulnerability and being able to share in a group of other people, That's you're 50% of the way there if you can do that. And so if you know, like if someone told you, all right, you have some weird virus and what you need to do is you need to go for a walk on a cold beach for 30 minutes and the virus is going to go away. Would you do it? I would. Mm -hmm. So it's it's kind of the same thing. It's like, just know that this is part of your medicine. This is part of your healing to get to the other side and know that, first of all, everybody else is more concerned about themselves than you. We think people are judging us far more than they actually are. People are just judging themselves. And, and second, you have a beautiful opportunity to not only share your vulnerability, but to bring your love into that group. So whenever I get into a headspace, Antonio, whether it's in a personal development setting or social setting, Whenever I see my thoughts going to nervousness, insecurity, self-consciousness, comparison, imposter syndrome, any of those, I think more about what I can bring. How can I bring love to this group? How can I bring honesty to this group? How can I be more concerned about other people than I am about my own insecurity?
0: What a beautiful minder that breakthroughs can happen when we help others. Yeah. Massively. Uh, I, I want to... End with this last question, and I appreciate everything that you've shared in this. And right now, I'm thinking about that 11 year old that started taking those antidepressants, and that that woman that took those for you know 20 years. And you've had you know like all of us, we have different chapters in life. And for me, it's always fun to look back at the different chapters of our lives, and, and you know, think, wow, here we are today. My last question to you, Christine, is this: How do you live a life? to ensure uh, the best thing is ahead of you instead of behind you?
1: Honestly, I enjoy the present moment. Mm. That's it. I used to make things far more complicated. But what I've learned about life and energy and from amazing teachers like Joe Dispenza and so many others that I've had the pleasure of studying with is that the more I'm feeling good in the present moment, feeling gratitude, feeling love, feeling excited about limited, unexpected possibilities, the less I'm controlling and predicting and being attached to the way things I want to go, the less I'm in the past or the future. The more I'm in that that precious present moment, the more my future gets even better and better.
0: That's beautiful. Just like you saying, vulnerability is healing serum. I am so excited for you and your husband to get in that house in <laughs> Austin where you can put all your underwear away and yes. walk around barefoot and Oh my, it's going to be so beautiful for you. And I can't wait to see the location on those posts that say Austin, Texas. <laughs> for those listeners that want to learn more about you, uh, can you tell them about Christine Hassler uh, headquarters where they can find you there and <laughs> on and social media uh,
1: headquarters? That's cute. Um, so definitely go check out the podcast over and on with it. Every Wednesday, there's a numbered episode that is a, like I said, unscripted, unedited, unproduced, raw live life coaching session with me and someone that you get to listen to. And every Saturday I interview other thought leaders like Antonio. So you can listen to his interview on the podcast as well. So over at and with it, that's a great place to connect. My favorite social media platform is Instagram. And then if you go to Christinehaster.com, you can opt in to get my free coaching assessment where I take you through a little personal development exercise. It's actually really relevatory. So I encourage you to go sign up there as well.
0: Well, beautiful. Thank you so much for making time. This has been a joy. It's so much fun talking to you. I'm sure the listeners love it and I can't wait to do it again.
1: Me too. Thanks, Antonio. Thanks for listening to the Best Thing Podcast with Antonio Nevs. Join us next week for more stories that'll help you see the world through a new lens. For more resources, go to theantonioneves.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, we ask that you share with a friend and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode.